Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 22nd, 2014, and this is episode 1450 of the Survival Podcast. And today's going to be just me, me and you guys having a chat uh, about lessons on the TSP homestead so far in 2014 and going into fall-winter planning for the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. Hopefully you guys will enjoy this. i got a lot of cool stuff to talk to you about today. Before I do that, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors will help you complete that linchpin of the gun operator triangle of efficiency, as I call it. Good weapon, good ammo. Those things you can buy off the shelf. They are what they are. As long as you don't screw them up, they'll work. But the linchpin, the variable, is actually the operator. That means you need good training. You need to take it regularly at, one, at least once every couple of years. You should be taking a good firearms training class if you're serious about defending your family and protecting others uh, as someone that carries or owns a firearm for personal protection. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Next up, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Well, Berkey water filtration systems, of course. And Jeff is the guy to get your Berkey from. Let me tell you why. You could get a Berkey anywhere, and it is a Berkey. But what Jeff has is customer service that's maniac-like, and it's it's desire to serve the customer well. I don't know of anybody in any industry, anywhere, that cares about his customers as much as Jeff does. Jeff is just an amazing guy. He's also got some other great stuff for you at Directive21.com, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storage foods and other cool stuff. Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, does give a discount to members of the Support Brigade as well. So make sure to check the benefits section, the MSB, uh, before you buy from Jeff if you are an MSB member. If you're not, hey, man, join the MSB. Get a bunch of great discounts. Support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you get a discount. Uh, if you email me before, not after you join, service discount goes in the subject line. One or two sentences about your service and send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Now, before we get into the main topic, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1450, and it is the beginning of something monumentous in human history known as the Little Ice Age. So we have the Little Ice Age and the Wolves of Paris, not the werewolves of London, but the Wolves of Paris, and we have the Great Vowel Shift revisited. The vowel shift is actually very interesting and is still affecting people to this day. But you'll have to read about it yourself if you want to at tspwiki.com. Again, tspwiki.com is the survival sustainability wiki, and it also has these great history segments in it from Alex Shrug. So let me read to you about the Little Ice Age and the Wolves of Paris. Through this harsh winter, 30, ch 30 children and 10 adults have been killed as a pack of wolves roam the streets of Paris. The wolves have a pack leader uh, that the Paris citizens have named Cortou, which simply means stumpy or bombtail. Breaches in the city walls have made it easy for the wolf pack to move in and out of the populated areas. In the end, the wolf pack is lured to Notre Dame Cathedral, where the citizens spear and stone the wolves to death in front of the church. My take by Alex Shrug. The most common reason for wolf attacks is rabies, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Let me just, as an aside, it can't be. If the, if the animals had rabies, they wouldn't have been round long enough to kill 30 children and 10 adults. 
they they would have been dead long before that from the rabies virus itself. During the beginnings of the Little Ice Age, the winter cold intensified from 1430 to 1455. In difficult winters, wolves are forced into populated areas looking for food. Obviously, when wolves live close to humans, attacks on humans will increase. In the coming years, more and more wolf attacks will be reported. In modern day, there is a temptation to treat wolves like dogs, but there is something primitive and unpredictable about wolves. That's because they're wild animals, by the way. I don't want to scare anyone, but this is in Lassie we are talking about here. Kent Weber of Mission Wolf of Colorado rescues wolf-dog crossbreeds and pet wolves that can't survive in the wild. He is educating the public that wolves are good for nature, but not good for humans, so don't make them pets. Good advice. Um, I think that human beings think that Dogs are dogs because they're raised as puppies with people, so they know how to get along with people. And wolves are wolves because they grow up out in the wild. And if a dog grew up in the wild, it would be like a wolf. And if a wolf grew up like a dog, it would be like a dog. It doesn't work that way. I remember watching a documentary where they had wolves that were raised from pups that were treated as much like a dog as you could and attempted to be trained. And the way that the wolves would respond to command was completely different than the way a dog would. A dog, if a person looks in their direction and the dog's paying attention to the person, the dog looks. And if a person points and the dog's paying attention and they see the person point, they look where the person points. Wolves don't do that. That alone tells you something. The dog is far more like humans than any other animal that we know of. I remember another documentary I watched. I wish I could tell you the names of these two, but this other documentary, they showed images to people and they showed images to dogs. And they put brain scans on the dogs and the people. And any other animal you show these images, they're, they have little parts of their brains that light up. But they're different than a human, which you would expect, including even monkeys. Different parts of their brain light up when they see certain images. The dog and the human light up the same segments of the brain, such as our long-term relationship with the dog, that they have actually begun to, believe it or not, think the way that we do. And wolves don't do that. Now, if we started breeding wolves over and over throughout the years and created a new line of dogs that originated from wolves, in time we could probably breed that behavior in. But right now, your best friend has about a 10,000-year head start, so let's just stick with that. That's my advice and my take by Jack Spierko. When it comes to having a canine in your homestead, I don't advise you trying it with a wolf. Before I get into my stuff today, I do have to say, I, I remember somebody that brought a coyote pup in, and the coyote pup pretty much acted like a dog. So maybe there's something there with the coyote. Maybe that would be a better place to start. I don't know. He was pretty cool-looking coyote, too. He was on a blog, and there was all kinds of pictures of him sleeping with the cat and things like that. Uh, I don't know that I'd trust a coyote sleeping with the cat, even if I raised it from a pup, but I know I wouldn't trust a wolf. Anyway, uh, one more thing on the wolves. Wolves attacking humans is actually extremely rare. Uh, these animals had to be very, very hungry and have nothing else to hunt to overcome their fear of man and start actually hunting humans. That tells you something about the year 1450. Now, let's start talking about the year um, 2014 and what it's been like here at the TSP Homestead. This is just a great time. We're almost through October. We're coming up on Halloween. Kids are going to go out and get candy. Let your kids go get candy. Let them eat until they're sick. 
It's once a year, let it happen. Let them eat till they're sick on Thanksgiving, and let them eat till they're sick on Christmas. This is just the time of year for it and enjoying it and indulging a little bit. Just an aside there. But 2014 was a big year. I mean, if you look at what we've done, not just on the homestead, in 2014, the TSP community has launched permaethos.com and, and has really begun an effective transformation of the permaethos farm in West Virginia. Uh, Nick Ferguson and myself are talking today about some of the plantings going into the, the initial design next year. And we're also talking about how we can work with other people, not quite in the way that we're running this farm in West Virginia, but how can we broaden out and help as many people as possible establish their own permaethos-style permaculture farms. So that's happened. AgriTrue was, was just something we thought of over three years ago, finally came to fruition. We have a working site. Uh, I, I checked the other day after the contest. We didn't have the huge spike that I hoped in uh, people joining it. But AgriTrue now, I can find three or four producers within 100 miles of my home. It's a start. We need your help to make it even more than it is. Uh, we do have some winners to be announced. I'm going to do that later this week, but it is already announced on the AgriTrue blog. So AgriTrue got launched. And I'd like your opinion on this. Um, when we launched AgriTrue initially, we weren't trying to be just like organic. Two things we were going to allow and decided not to. One was the use of conventional fertilizer, um, as long as there was a soil management improvement program. And the more I learned about soil science, the more I learned that's not possible. You, you can't be using conventional fertilizers and improving your soil. It just doesn't work, and we decided to nix that. The other thing we were going to allow is we were never going to allow GMO, grain, produce, etc. to carry the AgriTrue label. But we were going to say, if you're pasture-raising chickens and all the feed you can get is GMO feed, um, we'll let you do that, but you have to disclose that you're feeding conventional feed. And the partners and I discussed it, and we, we have such a desire to alter the paradigm of genetically modified crops, especially what they modify those crops to do, and the tactics of the companies that produce them, that we thought about it and said, let's not do that. We have to stand for something. When somebody sees AgriTrue, they need to know at least there's no pesticides, no herbicides, no chemicals, no GMOs, uh, and the land's being taken care of and the animals are be tra being treated ethically. When I think about that, though, if you gave me the choice between a pasture-raised chicken that some of their feed contains GMO grain and a supermarket chicken, I'm going to take the pastured chicken. I would say I'll take the pastured, locally produced chicken that's had some GMO grain over most supermarket organic chicken. So we're thinking about opening that. And I think there's a lot of producers of pork and poultry especially that it would open the door for. And I'd like your opinion on that in the show notes today if you have one. And especially if you're a producer that would say, we'll join if you'll do that. I, I want to know... Uh, if that would work. And my hope is to help build enough of a market where we can get people off the GMO grain in time. But right now, if you're trying to raise chickens and make a living, um, unless you're selling under the organic label at a real premium, it's hard to do, and I understand that. So AgriTrue, the TSP Wiki, we launched that this year. I just launched SchoolStupidity.com. I heard somebody from somebody recently who um, had contacted me before about doing some work with blogs for me, and uh, they weren't ready at the time. 
and they said they're ready now. I'm going to contact that person and see if they're interested in shepherding school stupidity. But for everybody else, if that person's not interested in that site, I may be looking for someone to run schoolstupidity.com because as easy as it is, I don't have the time. And I think that site can become something really, really cool for the right person. So if you're interested in it, just put it on the shelf for now, but stay tuned. After I make this offer, if that person turns it down, I'm going to open it to the general public and say, who wants to be the shepherd of school stupidity? And we're going to be releasing genforward.com uh, on November 17th. I mean, that's pretty amazing that, that this community has springboarded so many new initiatives in 10 months, 10 months' time. It's awesome. But what I, w I really want to talk about most today is the on-the-ground stuff here at the TSP Homestead. One of the things I'm most excited about is the what I'm calling the rise of the red pharaoh chicken. Um, we have two hens, two red pharaoh hens, that have made it to adulthood now and are starting to lay and behave like adult female chickens. They are gorgeous. When I just showed one to Kelly Heron, who is here uh, shooting video this week with me, He looked at it and he said, they almost look like a pheasant. And the funny thing is, they they fly almost like a pheasant. I scared one the other day, and she got up over that fence, man. I mean, that bird got to wing. Um, they're not a big bird, and I won't be killing any of them anytime soon because I only have a couple of them. But I wonder if they might be a really good-tasting small meat bird, too. Um, they just seem like they would by the look at them. The improvement... And just for those that don't know, the red pharaoh is a cross of an Egyptian Faomi hen to a Rhode Island red rooster. And these birds are just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous birds. And as far as I know, anyway, I'm the first person to, to take that cross and begin working with it. And I'm going to continue to work with it. I have a, a young cockerel uh, rooster. He is the same cross, but he looks totally different. He shows a lot more of the Faomi genes, and the females show a lot more of the Rhode Island red genes. So I'm going to be working with them a lot. I'm going to save some comments on how I'm going to be doing that for more toward the end of the show. But what I hope the Red Pharaoh does is if anybody else wants to breed them, go ahead. Um, and it's that simple. Rhode Island red rooster, Faomi hen. See what you get. But I hope it actually inspires people to try other things like I mean, that was just waiting to happen. And apparently nobody had ever done it before or had ever cared enough to, like, say, here's the results of it. So I'm going to be working more with it. But what else could be crossed in animals, birds, chickens, etc.? What might we get with a little bit of experimentation? Um, next, I've learned a lot about ducks this year. And I've learned that they are, in many ways, for managing a homestead, preferable to chickens. Uh, they have a very clown-like personality, and they seem to do a lot less damage. They do make some holes here and there when it's muddy by digging their beaks in, but those holes are actually pretty beneficial. You throw a shovel of compost or two in there, and you've just infiltrated nutrient. They don't scratch. They don't tear much up, and uh, they're really pleasant to be around. And now that they're starting to lay, um, we have a pretty big flock. It's like 24 birds. But there's a lot of drakes. I would say it's way on balance. And there's going to be a lot of drakes getting roasted Chinese style soon, maybe curried. Um, but we're getting five, six duck eggs a day now. Uh, they're up there with the productivity of the chickens. And this is from a mixed flock that's not a dedicated egg-laying breed. Like I'm sure if we went all khaki Campbells or silver apple yards or something like that, we'd have a much higher egg production. So 
the eggs taste better, the birds are easier on the land, they're more uh, they're more fun and easy to get along with. Uh, they're easier to they cooperate better at night when it's time to go to bed. If you want them in a little bit early, you push them over there. They do what they're told. Um, they follow you around. They don't like to be picked up, and they'll let you get you know within a few feet before then they're like no 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 and they start running away. But they're pretty friendly. Um, they don't scare anybody. Uh, they don't hurt anybody. They don't tear anything up. They poop everywhere. They put lots of nutrient out. And wherever you put water, they'll go there and work that area for you. So to me, they are a much more functional element in my landscape at this point than chickens because I have less concern about restricting their movements. And they're a lot more cooperative, and they don't fly over freaking fences. So I don't have to clip their wings or anything. Now, um, they do have some areas that they have not really damaged, but they've made the land not optimum. And it's from those flat feet walking on some of the berms that've compacted the soil. Wherever you got good ground cover, it's not a problem. But once they start compacting the soil, it's hard to get something to grow. So I have a lot of areas that I need to bring in some loose soil and put down that loose soil and seed it and keep it watered and try to keep them away from these areas until they recover. Once you got a good vegetation amount down, they don't cause any problems at all. So ducks are awesome. Also with the laying. I think this is the meat source that I hoped the geese would be. Now, they won't be as big as geese, but they grow fast. They don't grow as fast as geese, but, I mean, you're still talking 12, 14 weeks to a good-sized duck. Um, I really thought in the beginning that I would favor the rowans, the ones that look like mallards. But when I look at the size of the Cayugas and the Swedish ducks we have, especially the drakes, these are big birds. I mean, they're going to make a nice roaster. So I think that the geese might all be legs up by the end of the holidays in a roasting pan, in an oven, on convection roast. And I'm sorry, but that's just, I think it might be the way that it's going to be. They have proven themselves to be the most destructive force here. And I think the timing's just wrong. They've done things like Dorothy had a beautiful patch of strawberries planted out in the front yard. They were flying right up until about August. And then one day the geese got bored. They didn't eat the strawberries. They pulled them all out of the ground because they were bored. Um, I think that when, this, when the whole system is maybe two or three years from now, far more established, bigger trees, bigger bushes, more that they could chew on and pull on and not really hurt the survivability uh, of a system, that maybe we will reintroduce geese at that time. Except for Buddy. I think Buddy is going to stay. Buddy is going to be the goose that doesn't become a roasted goose. A goose that's not goose, his goose is not cooked. Um, he, she, we're pretty sure it's a she actually, by staying with the ducks, doesn't behave like a typical goose. Uh, she doesn't destroy much. She does peck around and stuff, and there's some goose-like behavior in her, but she acts a lot more like a duck, because I guess you act like the people you surround yourself with, or the ducks you surround yourself with. About the only thing she's taken to doing lately, and this is fine, because it's planted for them, I have a lot of sorghum in the food forest that I've been planting. I'll talk more about that in a bit, too. And a lot of it I went through, and I cut it. I cut it all about two feet high, and took the grain heads off it, and put it in a bucket, and I feed them a couple grain heads every day. Um, but it, when you cut sorghum, it actually coppices many times and sends up new heads and makes another grain crop. So these heads that it's sent up 
are about three and a half, four feet high now, but they're a lot thinner stocked than the, the first sorghum stock. So a goose, like Buddy, can get in there and start chewing on the stock and basically crack it after a little bit of work, and it falls over and eat the head off the sorghum. So she's figured that out. So I watch her going through, and it looks like little timber action, little Paul Bunyan action going on as she tips the sorghum over and eats the heads off. Uh, so she seems like she's doing a good job of protecting the ducks. If anything threatens the ducks, she goes nuts, goes into full wing-beat goose mode. Uh, so she seems like a good guard goose. And that's making me think that maybe for those of you thinking about starting up a small duck flock, maybe one or two geese, if you bring them up as, as babies together, would not be a bad idea. And that would be a way to create the, the flock bond that exists there. Because if you try, like right now, when the ducks, the ducks get around the other geese, They get, they get the crap beat out of them. Uh, the geese are just, are way able to outclass the ducks in, uh, in physical combativeness. So anyway, those are my thoughts on those. Um, a, a crop that I tried last year has proven to reseed in my climate. I'm very happy with it. It's called jute mallow. J-U-T-E-M-A-L-L-O-W. I think this is actually available now in seed in quite a few places in the United States. Two and a half years ago, when I wanted to get my hands on some, I had to order it from France. It took so long to get to me that I forgot I ordered it, and it came listed as the scientific name, and I couldn't remember what it was, and I had to look up the scientific name, and I'm like, oh, that's what that is. And it was a little tiny pack of blue seeds, and I paid like $9, I think, for the package, and like 20 for shipping to get it here from France. And it got held in customs because one of the common names is something-something hemp. Uh, but it's not a hemp species. It's not in the same family as marijuana or rope hemp or anything like that. But I guess Customs was investigating it or whatever and took a couple months to give me my freaking $9 worth of seed. Finally got it in the ground last year. It did okay. We got a huge seed yield out of it. It has little seed pods that look sort of kind of like little mini okra pods. And it is in the same family as okra. Anyway, the little pods do not taste like okra. And they don't taste like okra at all. They taste bad, very, very bad. But the leaves are a great green. And the plant itself can be used as a fiber plant. So the plant, as soon as it starts putting leaves on, you can harvest the leaves, you can put them in a salad, or you can braise them and uh, cook with them. So you've got a plant that basically produces a green all season long. And only about now do the leaves start to kind of go off and turn color and uh, become something you wouldn't want to eat anymore as the seed pods begin to firm up. So our plan is to harvest a ton of seed this year, but we, but it did also self-reseed in my little hoogle garden. So it, it, it can be naturalized. So I think we're going to have a lot more seed this year. In the food forest, I just sprinkled seed out of a bag. We had about a quarter of a gallon of the seed that we got off a few plants. So this year I'm going to have a much bigger supply of that seed. If you come to the workshop this fall, and we're sold out, so just... That's where we're at right now with it. But if you're coming and you haven't been here before and gotten some of that seed, make sure you take some with you. This is an amazing plant. And at least if you're in 7B or higher, it does appear that it will self-reseed and grow out a full crop every year for you. Um, so it's something I'm going to be keep working on. For folks not coming here that can't get any seed from me, you can probably find some. I found somebody uh, called Solute Seeds uh, selling it on Amazon. Some of the other things you can search for instead of uh, jute mallow would be just jute seed. 
uh, or Egyptian spinach, as it's, it's sometimes called. Uh, but it's a great plant, and I'm pretty excited to have it doing so well here. And I may try to get some my hands on some other varieties of it. Uh, but, I, again, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with what we've had work so far. And I'm working more and more to try to get things to naturalize on my property, things that will just self-recede and come back on their own. It may not be a huge yield that comes from that, but the plants that produce that way will be extremely hardy, extremely healthy, and develop very, very resilient seed strains. I decided one of the things I really wanted to do uh, two years ago was develop a land race of sorghum. And instead of doing a cross-pollination thing, I wanted actually to take, take a variety, a common heirloom variety of sorghum, and source seed from 10 or 15 different sources and just keep reseeding it and reseeding it. Let some of it do it itself, save some seed, but have sorghum as a grain product for my chickens and my ducks and my geese. So I trialed four different sorghums based on the information I could gather on them. The first was black amber, and I trialed this because it's so drought-resistant, and I found that it's, it is very drought-resistant. I even tried to kill some of it by not giving it any water whatsoever uh, during a peak drought, and it did look like it was dying, and when it rained, it came back to life. That's, that's pretty awesome, so I liked that. The problem was the birds didn't like it as much as they did every other variety. So if you if you threw down the other three varieties in this in front of the birds, they ate everything but that. And then if they were really hungry and they were bored, they would eat the black amber. So they just didn't like the grain as much. So that one ended up getting nixed uh, right away. Then last year, you know, I had grown these other varieties and I waited to see do any of them reseed. Giant white African. It didn't reseed at all, and my other problem with Giant White African is it got so big so fast it fell over, so it didn't stay upright. So when I looked at that, I went, well, you know, even if I have to harvest the grain headings and all, that's fine, but if it's going to fall over, the birds are going to take it out before it's fully productive. So I decided to nix the Giant White Amber, or White African. I think this would work well for many of you, though. I have very shallow soils. I think if this were planted, you know, a half inch deep in deep soils where you get a deep, deep, heavy root system in, it probably doesn't fall over. Here it falls over. Plus, you know, sorghum is a plant you put in in the spring after uh, danger of final frost is over. And at that point, we have very, very intense winds here. So if you were in a place without that very intense winds and deeper soils, you're probably not going to have that problem. I do, so it got nixed. The next is called Terahuma. And it is a popping sorghum, not that I really cared whether I popped it or not. Um, it just doesn't self-recede as well as the others. All, you know, the others, the, the two that receded themselves were Mennonite and Black Amber. So since both of those tend to come back on their own with less help, I decided to nix that. So I, I came up with Mennonite as my primary sorghum that I'm going to be working on a land race with now. Here's why. It's kind of compact. Some of the websites I see it advertised on say it grows 11 feet tall. I've never seen it grow 11 feet tall. I see it grow about 6 foot tall. And it puts multiple seed heads on. And it's relatively small canes. And it's very, very dense. And it holds up to the wind well. When you cut it, it starts to coppice and regrow a second seed head crop almost immediately. 
I think if I grew a lot of it, I think if I got it either naturally growing on its own or sowed as early as possible, I could get three crops of seed heads off Mennonite in one season. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, and it also reseeds itself. And the birds love it. If I give them a handful of the four that I've grown, and let's say a handful of like feed store sorghum, and put it in front of them, everybody wants the Mennonite first. So it won the trials. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the case for you. You might find a different result. And even the palatability to the birds. So this is alkaline soil. It's shallow, harsh, windy, dry, hot. You might grow a, a sorghum that my birds didn't really like in a much more gentle environment like the Northeast, and it might be far more palatable to your birds. So that black amber that can handle the drought, maybe, maybe it does that in such a way that it makes itself a little off-putting. But if that black amber were grown in deep, rich, fertile soils, it might be a lot more palatable. You'd have to try for yourself. But that's been my result so far. So next year, I'm going to source Mennonite sorghum from about 10 different sources to get as much genetics in as I can. And I'm going to sow the hell out of it all over the place. And where it grows, it grows specifically in the food forest. It should do really well growing in there kind of as a support species, nice and tall upright, gives a place for the cowpeas that are naturalizing to uh, to grow. And that is um, another plant that I've had incredible results with now, uh, naturalizing itself. I have red cowpea growing all over the place. Uh, now it's all going to seed. The birds love that too. They let it get to a certain size. There's lots of forage around. When the forage starts to dry up toward the end of the season, then they start eating a lot of the cowpea leaves. And so the, 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 the geese have always loved the cowpea leaves. The ducks are beginning to forage on it too. So it's a good forage crop. It fixes nitrogen, and it's reseeding itself. So uh, sorghum and red cowpea are two plants I'm really working to develop you know, land races of uh, without outcrossing it, just sticking with red cowpea and Mennonite sorghum, but getting as much genetics in as I can. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is I really realized by the end of this year how important it is to develop the skills of plant propagation if you're planting anything over like a quarter of an acre. To be able to grow trees, bushes, dew cuttings, things like that. We're putting in a proper nursery. The beginnings of it are going in with the fall workshop. I have two boxes built now for, for, for my, uh, my automatic watering system. One to do intermittent mist for, um, rooting cuttings, and the other one more of a conventional irrigation with a different bedding we're going to put down for growing seedling trees. And I'll probably be putting in two more boxes next year for growing out tree seedlings into one-and-a-half-year bare roots, uh, both for producing for permaethos farms for my own use and for selling to customers directly here at the homestead as Dorothy begins to form and build her business with eggs and a bunch of other stuff, including plant propagation. So, But in the end, what I realize now is plant propagation is like printing money. You know, I look at something like some of the autumn olives we're working with, some of the uh, kind of designer autumn olives, ambers and rubies and garnets. These are $25 trees. Snip, dip. Put an intermittent root system, uh, intermittent misting system. You know, two three months later, you got a big root system on that little cutting. Grow that cutting out, put it in the ground. You've got a, you got a expensive plant. That you have almost no money into. And I've started to learn there's a lot of things that you can propagate without even doing that, and other cool ways to do that. 
Uh, I'll be talking more about that in the future, especially as we get closer to Nick Ferguson's uh, plant propagation course that we'll be releasing through Parma Ethos. He's working very hard on that right now, and that's going to be that course is going to give you a 100% return of investment. Like the first time you use one skill, you learn in it because to produce $200, $300 worth of plants when you know how is like that. And an intermittent mist system, that is like a printer, a money printer, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, I think that if I had this all to do over again, one of the first things I would have done was put in right where it's going to be now, uh, a nursery. Uh, nice shady spot, water catchment sitting there, flat level area, access to electricity and water, just honest to God, If you're developing a large property, it costs a lot of money to buy plants. And if you're going to develop five, ten acres, you can't afford to do it by buying plants. You've got to you've got to be able to do some of your own production. So uh, I definitely recommend you consider that. Next thing is don't skimp on the support trees. When I started looking at how much we were planting, uh, my original plan for the food forest was between seven and nine support trees to every individual tree. And we ended up not doing it. I had a bunch of seedlings. There's still a bunch of tubelings here. We'll probably throw them all in the ground, and any of them that make it, make it. But going into next year, I'm going to go in acacias, mimosas, uh, locusts, seeds. I'm going to do the boiling water treatment, which is basically you put the seed in a jar. You boil water. You take it off the stove and let it stop boiling. You let it sit for a couple of minutes. You dump the steaming hot water on the on the seeds. And uh, you let them sit for a bit, and then you rinse them off, and then you put them in a wet paper towel. Uh, in fact, you let them sit overnight in that water. And then you clean them off, put them in a wet paper towel, and wait for them to start germinating. Um, I've had good luck with just about everything. Lucena, uh, with, uh, with mimosa, with acacias doing that, and getting very, very high germination rates with that method. So what I'm going to do next spring, once I know we're past the danger of frost, I'm going to take a bunch of mimosa, a bunch of acacias, etc., and I'm going to give them that treatment. And every time one starts to sprout, we'll go put that little tendrilled seedling in the ground throughout all the berms and all the extension of the food forest. And it would have been better if we did it on establishment. We didn't, but we can do it now. And what you have to get over with these densities is these trees are going to be very small trees for a long time. And by the time all the trees get big, most of them you've killed and coppiced out anyway. And that's an inexpensive way to do it. Um, what happened this year is a lot of stuff we thought we could get our hands on for support species, we were not able to. Another support species we're going to be putting in, in very large numbers, is going to be autumn olive. And I'm, I'm coming to really, really like this plant, and it does well here. More on that in a bit. Uh, but don't skip on your support species, especially in these southern harsh climates. I think those of you guys in more northern temperate climates can get away with a lot less with it. The next lesson, and I already knew this, but we got by with it till now, and now it's ready to fall down. Pop-up greenhouses suck. Uh, we're going to build a framed-out, nice, proper greenhouse this year. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having that. Uh, that might be a project. I have some folks coming here to act as, uh, as helpers slash caretakers on the property, spend a few months with us. Uh, they're bringing an RV. They're going to park and live out of their RV. Uh, I may really, that may be one of the first things I really put those folks on is helping me get that greenhouse put in uh, with automatic watering systems in it, et cetera, uh, being able to heat all or a portion of it, and, uh, and just what that will add 
from a plant propagation standpoint and from you know producing crops throughout the winter uh, and many other things, it's just something we have to do. Uh, but pop, I will never buy a pop-up greenhouse again. That said, the shell of the pop-up greenhouse, there's nothing wrong with it. It's good material. So if you're coming to, if you're coming to the fall workshop, you can have the poles if you want them, but most of them are broken from the ice storm. That's why the thing's falling down. I am going to barter the shell of the greenhouse. And if you wanted a fabric greenhouse, probably 60 bucks worth of framing lumber or so, and build your own frame and drape it over it, you'd have an instant greenhouse. But I would build my own frame with it. I'm going to barter it, and I'm going to take pretty much whatever anybody offers. So I'm just saying some of you guys driving in might want to think about that if you're interested. And it's a, a flower house brand, uh, really great material that the shell's made out of. I've just decided I'm going to go with more of a full panel, uh, rigid greenhouse. So, And I want it to be bigger and different dimensions than the shell. Otherwise, I'd throw a frame up and do this myself. Uh, but that's just something to think about if you're coming here. Uh, next is Wolfberry. It's freaking tough as nails, easy to propagate, and an awesome crop. It's an awesome crop to sell plants. You can make tea from the leaves. The berries are extremely nutritious. It's a crop that should be being grown by permaculture farms as a nutraceutical. There's a market for both the dried berries and the berries being used for extracts in uh, health products that you'll see on the shelves of high-end nutrition stores and low-end consumer stores like Walmart. It is a mainframe crop that needs to be grown more. It is a cash crop. It is so easy to propagate. It is stupid. So I started taking soft and hardwood cuttings off a couple of my plants. I had a bunch of pots that some little comfrey roots had been put in that Dorothy overwatered, so the roots rotted away in them. So I just started sticking these cuttings from the wolfberry into these pots, and I put them in a shady area and kept them wet. And all the softwoods just started growing. In like a week, they had you know five, six-inch roots on them. And I pull them out, look at the roots, and go, wow, stick them back in there, and they just keep going. All the hardwoods dried up and looked like they died. Uh, no rooting hormone, no intermittent mist, no plastic bag over in the whole humidity, just wet potting soil. And then about half of the hardwoods did die, and about half of the hardwood cuttings, all of a sudden little green buds started to appear, and now they're going like crazy too. So I can make thousands of these. And if they do that well, um, just being cut this late in the season and put into a pot, imagine how they'll do in a good propagation misting system. Uh, I have a bunch of that going in in the fall workshop. I'll probably give away some of that to people that are here or maybe barter some of them. But I am going to make a ton of these things next year. And they taste good. They handle Once they're established, they handle the drought. And this is a plan I almost gave up on. I've ordered plenty of these daggone plants uh, from Rain Tree, One Green World, Stark Brothers, etc. Every single one that I've ordered from a catalog, when it gets here, it looks like somebody stepped on it. It barely survives. It barely makes it. Out of like 10 of them that I've planted in the ground, one's alive this year. One. And it's not one that I planted this year. It was one I planted last year. All of the ones we planted this spring, dead. Did not make it. I've got two from a nursery sitting in my greenhouse. They're doing okay. I've got a whole bunch I got off Mike McGarty's uh, forum uh, where I'm a member. And I bought 25 rooted cuttings from somebody this year. And they were just fabulous when they got here. 
I took them out. They looked sad after about an hour. I soaked them in some water. I got them in the pots, loved on them for about a week. They came right back. Uh, I put two in the ground. I've got berries on them this year. But I put in his rooted cuttings this year. I got berries this year. Next year, those plants should be booming. So that's another plant that I've decided that really is going to be a mainstay here. Um, and the birds like the berries. So if I plant enough of it, they can pick all the berries they want off the lower levels, and I'll keep the ones that come on the higher levels. And I just see this as being something that I want to propagate like crazy because it will do fine in Zone six, and I'll be sending tons of rooted cuttings up to West Virginia Permaethos because that's going to be a major nutraceutical crop for us there. Nick is excited about it as well. Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom, one of my partners there. I'll be giving him some plants uh, at the fall workshop Uh, so he'll be doing major propagation of this plant as well. But this is something to look into. I just have to warn you, if you're going to buy from a catalog, this is what I'm going to tell you you're going to have to do. You're going to have to buy it. You're going to have to be like waiting with bated breath for the, the, the plants to come. When they come, you need to get them out of the box immediately. You need to get them into a nice shaded location, into a beautifully prepared pot of potting soil. And you keep them out of the sun for at least a week. Not dark, but out of any direct sunlight for at least a week. Watered, loved on, cared for, prune off anything that starts to look bad, and love on it. Once it establishes, you can make all the cuttings you want for next to nothing. Now, why, why is that the case? I don't know. And I'd like to hear from anybody else that has experience with this plant that's bought plants from somewhere and what it's been like. But the only thing I've gotten that's really been healthy from the get-go has been rooted cuttings from, you know, like another backyard grower type of situation. But I am going to make this thing a mainstream here in the Texas climate. Another plant I've been working with this year is Mora alba isse, or dwarf mulberry. This is a plant that in the ground is supposed to get to up to about six feet. And pretty much any time I cut a cutting off one of these and stick in the ground, it starts growing. The geese ate one, but I think they did it out of rage and anger, not out of a desire to actually eat it. Um, it has only produced a few berries for me, the cuttings I've put in this year, but I think next year we'll have a lot. I have three in pots that uh, have done really well that exist mainly for the purpose of providing cuttings for me for the rest of my life. So I'll just keep taking cuttings off them. They'll send up more, I'll take more, and they'll send up more, and I'll keep doing that. I've got several in the ground that I'm, I, I know now. I don't even need the ones in the pots. They're doing really good. I've got one that I put in as a rooted cutting this year. It was, in fact, when, they, when it was put in, it was put in by students, and they said, man, this is a terrible cutting. It was just tiny. And it now, you know, it was like the diameter of the twig that made the cutting was about half the diameter of a pencil. The diameter of this, the, the trunk on it now is like a broomstick. It's only about two feet high, but the center trunk's like a broomstick in one season. This tree is going to do very well. Mulberries in general are doing well here, but dwarf mulberry to me is going to end up being something, since it's so easy to propagate, going into all the berms of the food forest, in a way it'll be a support species. It won't fix nitrogen, but it'll grow fast, produce a lot of biomass. The birds will browse the leaves some. It'll produce berries for the birds. The birds eat the berries, then the birds poop. That's as good a nitrogen fixation as you're going to get right there. So that's another plant that I recommend you look into. Easy to propagate. Buying them, they sell. I've seen private sellers on Amazon selling them for like $12, $15. Catalogs, $20 to $30. And yet you can propagate them just by putting a nice softwood cutting into wet, moist pot soil and taking care of it for a week or two, it starts to grow. 
I've got one pot where I just keep taking cuttings and sticking them in the same pot and making a multi-stemmed just because it's fun to do. Um, but I'll start doing more proper propagation of it next year. I also learned what really does well at the TSP homestead as far as trees. With all the exotic stuff I planted, there are certain trees and plants that are doing well wherever they are. Uh, and they are apple, peach, and plum. 90% of my apple trees are doing good. All my peach trees are doing good. All my plum trees are doing good. Just absolutely phenomenal. Um, almond, we lost one. The other one seems like it's, it's really rebounding well. You'd think it would do well being so closely related to the peach, but it may just be the planting locations and the time they went in. There weren't as many of them. Uh, but almond seems like it's going to work out. I've got another one to put in this fall. Uh, apricots are doing pretty dead gone good too. We, you know, I, uh, said I didn't want to grow apricots and I realized one of the tree, uh, trees that was left on my property by the prior homeowner was an apricot. And of the three trees he left, this was the one that was booming and beautiful. And also now I like apricots. I've also done some, um, you know, pluots and things like that. Anything in that plum, apricot, peach family does good here. Um, cherries will see. Uh, Hansen's bush cherry, I don't know if it's going to produce, so I'm, I'm leery to put too much into it, but that it's grown everywhere I've planted it. Nanking bush cherry, grown everywhere I've planted it. Proper cherries, like Roly and, uh, and Mini Royal, I planted four. One's alive, one's doing well, two are dead. We're going to put more in and see how they do uh, with better irrigation, which is something that uh, I really am going to make an effort this year to, to all through the winter be laying more and more pipes out so I can get irrigation out to plants. I don't want to water intensively, but I want to water enough to support plants during establishment. Uh, if I had it to do over again, the two big things I would do, again, put the nursery in right away, focus on the irrigation first. Uh, but those plants have all done well. Mulberries, what I just talked about, in addition to the dwarf mulberries, I planted three White mulberries, uh, the trademark name on them is Beautiful Day, but they're just a white mulberry. Those three trees are booming in the food forest. I also planted an, an Illinois ever-bearing uh, mulberry. It's doing really well. So as I plan the future, mulberry plays a big role here. Uh, I don't know how many mulberries I'll eat myself, but it makes pretty dadgone good mead. And the birds love it. So it's it's great, high-quality bird food. And it's reasonably high in protein for a berry. I think it's around like 11 or 13%, something in that range for mulberry uh, from a protein standpoint. Jujube, with the exception of one tree that didn't make it, which the rootstock's alive and will probably graft onto it, jujubes are doing good everywhere. Lee, Lang, and Contorted all doing well. Autumn Olive and Gumis do great. Uh, I thought the Goomies weren't doing well. I lost one last year, and then another one barely made it. Well, the one that barely made it this spring just blew up, and it's doing great. It'll probably fruit for me next year. And in other places where I was a little bit more uh, of a caretaker, where we put Goomy in, it's doing well. We've got some plants that first year, they're as big as a second-year plant, and uh, some other areas where I think it's just getting a little too much shade. Autumn Olive, if it gets some sun... And it doesn't dry out. It grows beautiful here. And it can be invasive. I know. Yeah, yeah, yada, yada. Um, but I, what I'm excited about are the designers, the designer uh, autumn olives, uh, the, the garnet, the ruby, and the amber. They're a little bit bigger, a little bit sweeter, and pretty easy to propagate. We haven't tried doing them from cuttings yet, 
but there's no reason they shouldn't. And even if they don't, as we start getting into berry production, you know, we can grow a few hundred of them from seed. Uh, they do very well just grown from seed. So uh, that's what makes them invasive, by the way. So autumn olive and gumi are going to be very much a support species. Now, autumn olive, for those not familiar with it, is not an olive, even though it's called that. Autumn olive is a fruit very similar to the gumi, which is a small red to amber, some even yellow fruits, little one single pit in them. Uh, until they're really ripe, they're a little bit astringent, but they're kind of cherry berry flavored, right? Like a, almost like a candy flavor. They make a really great juice that can be pressed and used to make wines and meads, and they're a, 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 a nitrogen fixer, so they fix nitrogen. So I have quite a few of them on property. Uh, they're very inexpensive to buy as seedlings. I will probably buy a bunch more next year. So as we're waiting for all those acacias and mimosas to come up and do their thing and decide who gets to live and who gets to die out of them, we can put in maybe an autumn olive between every major tree in the food forest next year. I have about six or eight of them right now to go in in the fall. Uh, but I have been saying that I really think we should, and that's another big lesson this year, plant your trees in the fall. If you can get them, plant them in the fall. But the autumn olives, with a few ex very few exceptions, they had no trouble being planted in the spring. So if I can get a bunch of seedlings next year for a couple bucks a piece, we'll put in maybe $200 worth of 100 trees, 100 bushes as support species here. Uh, and the way they we, – we noticed in West Virginia where they're growing wild, where the bulldozer went through to do some road work, and it like bulldozed a, a stand of autumn olives over, there's just these beautiful straight shoots just coppicing up. This is, I mean, like a D7, just blah, and it just like rose like a phoenix. So I start thinking about what an amazing support species that is for chop and drop. So I wouldn't be afraid of autumn olives, folks. I really wouldn't. Uh, they are, you don't see them growing in the middle of a field. They're an edge species. You don't see them deep in the forest. They're not as invasive as anybody says. And so like Texas says they're bad. And the reason Texas says they're bad is they improve the soil to such a degree that, that native species get displaced, by the way, by other native species. So the problem is they improve fertility too well. So I'm not shying off of that. If you improve fertility, I want you growing on my property. I need it. The other thing that seem to do well here in the right locations is elderberries. So elderberries, we lost some, we made some live. I've got a really great spot now. I've got two blue elders that just came in and a Nero, not a Nero, uh, two black elders of, of some variety. And even though the students are going to make a lot of design decisions, there's certain honey holes we found that for propagation purposes, I want a stand of something planted that's right where they're going. We know right where they're going. On that note, what doesn't do well here are blueberries, etc., and currants. Currants and gooseberries. I've lost all but one gooseberry and all but one currant. But now I have a place I'm going to call Current Row. I know where they survive. So I've got some really cool designer currants. They're going to go in that spot and in other spots like it, and hopefully most of them will make it. If they do, current, you cut it, you stick it in, it grows. So then I can make a hundred of each variety. I can plant them all over the place, and if 90 of 100 die, I don't care. At $12 to $20 a plant, I care. Right? At snip and stick, I don't care. 
And that's how I'm going to figure out where they grow here because it would be really cool to have a place with four or five or six different varieties of currants in freaking Texas. So that's going to be one of my kind of edgy things. A lot of other stuff I don't have on my list here that sort of kind of worked. The Cornelian Cherry Dogwoods, I've got six more of those, plus a yellow-fruited one. I kind of think that the students and I will be able to figure out where will they have the best chance of survival, and I think going in in the, in the winter and going or the fall and going through the winter and going dormant and coming back, they'll do better. A lot of them that looked really sick through the summer and had brown leaves and almost became completely leafless are now growing brand new growth in green leaves right now, and they look healthy. The new leaves do. So maybe those will make it through. I had apples do that the prior year. The grasshoppers tore them up. They looked awful. When they came back this spring, they were so much stronger. Again, a case for planting in the fall. On that, before I go forward, this is a big case for plant propagation. The problem with planting in the fall is a lot of times you can't get the plants you want. The companies aren't shipping them, or shipping's really expensive because they're not shipping them bare root. They want to take them into full dormancy and ship them bare root in the spring or the winter. If you can't get them in the, in the fall, I would say the next best bet is to plant them dormant in the winter. But to me, it can be kind of harsh. The tree hasn't got a chance to kind of settle in uh, with a little bit of life left into it. But if you're propagating your own trees... Well, you can grow them and take them through. And if you have a good little nursery set up, even if you're buying plants in the spring, because you, certain plants you can't get in the fall, then you have a nice place to put them and hold them through until they're ready to go dormant and put them in in the fall. So I think that's double duty for your nurseries. Uh, I mentioned blueberries suck, and honeyberries are similar to blueberries. They suck for me too. Everywhere I plant them, I do everything I can to make them happy, love on them. They do great. Nice and pretty, the heat of the summer comes, and all of a sudden the alkalinity here is too much for them, and they look like they chemically burn. They look like somebody sprayed them with Roundup. They just start to die. And then maybe the plant hangs on and comes back a little bit next year, but it's never a healthy plant. So if I'm going to have blueberries, they're going to have to go into a very deep, you know, raised bed container type situation with like a peat moss and, and vermiculite mix and something that's highly acidic. Uh, and I'll probably do that probably on the south side of my small shop building is probably where that's going to go because I can put automatic watering in there and I can give them a fake environment. That's what they're going to need. That's what they're going to want. And I'd like blueberries. So that's the only way they're going to happen here. If you live in northeast Texas, you're probably going to find the same thing. Our soils are alkaline. It's, it's uh, limestone-based. Even places where you're not as shallow as me, it's a limestone-based soil. It's alkaline. Um, the next thing I want to talk about today is some new things I'm going to try. Number one, white clover is a ground clover, clover, cover. I've tried to plant white clover quite a bit, but I've never like really in earnest tried to establish it in the fall with irrigation in places that I want it heavily established. So I'm going to do that this year. I just seeded all my conventional garden beds with white clover and daikon and a winter vegetable mix, Sepp Holzer style. And however that works is fine, but basically by spring I want a mat of clover. And when it's time to plant tomatoes or peppers, if I'm doing plants instead of seed, you cut a hole in the clover, put the plant in the ground, flip the clover sod over, put it back in the hole to cover up the plant roots, and let the clover grow back around the uh, plant. Uh, clover has a hard time surviving the heat here, but I think under irrigation in the conventional beds it'll do fine. In my hugel beds, 
I'm going to go through and put a coat of, uh, of, of compost and, and uh, sand soil uh, all across the top of the hugel beds. Just a, a light coating of it, and I'm going to seed the shit out of that with white clover and daikon and some other things, and then irrigate that through early winter and into the temperate winter days that we have here, even when we're going into frost. The clover can handle the frost, no problem. This year, when we do the food forest extension, we're going to go in and put a winter cover crop in. The other thing I'm going to do is I bought a whole bunch of bulk seed like kale, parsnip, radish, etc. We're going to seed a bunch of vegetables in with that cover crop mix and see how that does. We're going to definitely do better irrigation systems. As I said earlier, if I had it to do over, I would put irrigation in before the main design in most places, uh, but we're going to work with that as we can now. Um, I also mentioned that in the past I've started planning more and more of a fedge-like system or a food hedge system. We're going to really begin in earnest laying the groundwork of the... Uh, of the fedge system along with irrigation extension all the way around the property. So we'll never get there in one season. But my hope is I have a three-acre property and I have it cross-fenced into a one-acre west pasture and two acres on the east side to get a ring completely around the three acres and a line all the way along the, the, the cross-fence line. That's a massive amount of production. Uh, we're going to probably do that. We're going to have to bring dirt in. That's part of why it's going to take time due to the expense. But we're going to basically lay pipes on the ground. Every 10 feet, probably a head sprinkler zoned out with a main feed line and just put dirt on top of it to cover it. So bring in decent quality but low-cost dirt. Uh, and every five feet, plant a tree or a bush or a shrub. Uh, probably a lot of them established with the Irapans that I talk about from time to time. I've trialed those a little bit this year. I'm very impressed with the way they work and the improvement they make. And we might have to do, you know, 200 feet, 300 feet a year until we get the whole thing done. But we're going to begin that this winter. And winter is the time for that work because you're not, you know, ready to pass out and die in the heat. Uh, and the plants can be ready to go in in the spring in this situation uh, and fairly well looked after where we should be able to get away with spring planting and we can continue to work until late spring, maybe shed back a little bit in the summer when it's hot, but have more ready to go next fall. So we're trying to ring the whole property in apples, figs, pomegranates, mulberries, plums, you name it, especially stuff like a lot of that stuff will be propagating from seed on its own roots, very hardy, very very tough, and, ever, and alternating productive support species, productive support species. So like an apple, a mimosa, a plum, a locust, a fig, an acacia, like that. That's the kind of pattern we're going to do with this. And then understory as well, uh, more of the wolfberries because they're so easy to propagate, dwarf mulberries, etc., after the mainframe trees really begin to establish themselves. Uh, that will just provide us with some privacy, a lot of wind blocking, and a lot more production, and a lot more food for the animals. I On the animals, I mentioned the ro red pharaoh at the beginning. I want to talk about here toward the end today what I'm going to be doing with them next year. I'm going to build some sort of a mobile coop next year. Uh, not so much so I can tractor birds, but I might as well. And I want to do it with my Red Pharaoh project. I have this big flock of birds, and it's difficult to control who's breeding who and whose eggs are whose eggs in that environment. So my plan next year 
is to continue to work with the two birds that I have with the main flock, do the best I can to identify their eggs. I'm pretty sure what they look like now. But I will probably also purchase one or two, maybe two or three Rhode Island Red Roosters uh, and call two of them as they grow up. And I've got insurance if one dies, right? So a brand new rooster and probably four to six Egyptian Faomi hens and put them in a mobile chicken tractor coop system where I have complete control. He's breeding those birds. They're laying the eggs. That is all. And I may go by, you know, if I do it timed right, by this time next year, I may be selling red pharaoh baby chicks. And I think there's going to be a market for this bird. Um, I will try to get you guys a little bit of video later today of the, the, the red pharaoh females. They're a skittish bird. Um, I also plan to really work with these birds that I'm going to be working with uh, into that first generation of breeding stock, uh, handling them every day and trying to you know get some of that flightiness out of them. But I think this is going to be a bird for the person with 10, 15 acres that wants a couple dozen chickens and you don't want to do shit. You just want to put out some food and water and just let them to themselves and and hopefully get you know half of their their food from forage. That's what these birds these birds are amazing. They're the fastest chicken I've ever seen in my life. I thought the Faomis were fast and I didn't like them. Little legs, little body, obnoxious bird. I'm going to tolerate them to to get the breeding stock up because what I want to do after I get the breeding stock up And what I want to do with the, with the trio I have now, I also want to start breeding the F1 rooster to the F1 hens, even though they're brother and sister and it's incestuous. It'll work to see what we're going to get. And what, what do you get from that, that breed? How true to type does it stay? How long might it take to prove it out? Because I don't want this bird to remain what it is now, a, a unique hybrid. I want to prove out this breed. And that's like my big animal project going forward. I am enamored with this bird now. And when you see what this bird looks like, you'll understand why. And I do think they're going to make an amazing, you know, harvest small, like, game hen meat bird as well. Uh, maybe a premium meat bird. There's just, I mean, you can look at a bird and you can tell by the structure of its legs, its thighs, and its breast This is going to be a, a nice bird, and I think you're going to be, you know, harvesting these birds uh, roughly at the size of a pheasant carcass, maybe a little bit smaller, or maybe about the same weight, but not as long as a pheasant's. And I think that's what it's going to be like. It's going to present like a pheasant without all those damn tendons in the legs. I'm stoked on this bird, and if somebody would like to work on this breed with me and help me expand the breeding stock going into spring next year faster... Share notes, collaborate, exchange birds for getting more genes in the mix. Uh, if you're willing to, to make sure that you have a way to keep those birds from, you know, to know they're breeding only with a Rhode Island red rooster. And you can do this with a mixed flock. Uh, it's very easy with a mixed flock for the first generation. Get some Faomi hens, and as long as your other birds lay brown eggs, or big white eggs, you'll know the Faomi eggs. They're small white eggs. They're about, I'd say, two-thirds of the size of a normal chicken egg size. Okay, You have to deal with the obnoxious birds, but it's okay. And as long as you have a Rhode Island Red for a rooster, and only one rooster, you know what you're getting. You hatch them out, 
raise them up, you've got red pharaohs. The key is now, how many times do we have to breed the red pharaoh cockerel to the red pharaoh hen and do it over and over and, and selectively rebreed until we prove out that, that, uh, that genetic type? The size, the color, the behavior, etc. Because again, these birds are like golden. That's the co they're like golden and black and red. That's the color of these birds. Not bright red, this subtle, rusty, and they've got this, I've never seen hens with this before. They have long feathers on their necks that are what, when you, when you see a rooster first start to show that he's a rooster. When you can first start to tell, oh, that's a rooster. And they get that long, those long glossy feathers on their neck. That's what the hens look like in this bird. So I'm jazzed about it. If somebody wants to work on it with me next year, let me know. The last thing that I'm going to be doing after this workshop's over, everybody drives on my pasture and screws it up again. Um, and we get back into the swing of things going in the winter. Horse poop on contour. Yes, I'm serious. I'm going to get a horse to come and poop on contour every... No, that's not what I'm going to do. I have a neighbor that about twice a week brings me a 17-cubic-foot cart of horse manure and spreads it out on my, on my west pasture. He's almost put horse poop on the entire pasture at this point. They got a second horse, and, man, it just keeps coming. And they have problems with the horses pulling hay out, peeing on it, pooping on it. So it's usually a mixture of horse poop and hay. So what I'm going to do... Once this next event's done, is go out there with my laser level, mark out contour lines, and have him start piling the horse poop along contour lines. Let the chickens take it down, rake it up, and start to make low berms from 100% horse poop compost that's going to be just set there for me. When I say low berms, I mean four inches deep, four feet wide, almost flat. This is going to be where all of the trees that are going to be planted with protection from the birds in that west pasture are going to go. And those are going to be mostly to begin with hardy legumes, mimosas, acacias, etc. They can get into that rock and break it up. That's my low-tech, low-cost plan for the west pasture that is the bane of my existence right now. I'll design the berms so there's a clear pathway for vehicles to pull in. I'll preserve parking, but I'll start getting trees out there for shade And, and, and mass production for the birds and breaking up the soil and we can get other productive things there. But that will probably be managed basically as poultry civo pasture. And if everything works out with the red pharaohs long term, you may see me calling out almost all of my other chickens and going to a red pharaoh dedicated breeding program. So I'm trialing it next year with mobile coops with the hopes that You know, by the end of that year, if it's going really well, maybe we keep some of the production birds, but a lot of production birds will be getting cold uh, from the egg production and moving into a dedicated program based on these red pharaohs. So I've come from hating the Egyptian Faomi to seeing it as seed stock for one of the most innovative, unique breeds of chicken I've ever seen. And again, you got to see this bird. I put pictures up of them, but they were a lot younger, and they're sulky when you pick them up. They're like mopey. They don't want, they don't want to be held. So they won't display, and they're, they're, they're fast birds, so when you try to get close to them, they take off, right? So you say, well, that's bad in a chicken. Well, not if you're a homesteader on five or ten acres with animals that want to kill your birds. These birds can get away from predators. If someone comes after this bird, it's going over a fence, up a tree, what have you. 
and the, they're just deadly on the bugs. You, they see a grasshopper fly, and you just see this brown, red, black streak go across the field. Just awesome, awesome birds. Anyway, what's the biggest lesson that I've learned in homesteading now on this property for a year and a half? As soon as you find the best way to do something, you find a better way. I'm trying to more and more not make my decisions permanent. That way, if I change my mind, I can adapt and improvise into that system. Things like swales, you got to put them in. When you do it, it you're, it's there. You got to make sure you get that right. You don't want to type one error. But like the garden, you know, the garden is exa an example. So first I started polyculture in the hugel beds. Grass keeps coming in there. I want to take a whole system perennial anyway. So let's go ahead and put some uh, garden beds in, regular old school garden beds like I used to grow all the time. Used to love the garden like that. Put them back in. Next thing I know, I'm out there with 10 different varieties of winter seed mixed together, sprinkling it like grass seed. A couple of ounces of lettuce seed. I'll be pulling baby lettuce like crazy in a couple weeks. And I just realized this is just a better way to do things. All of a sudden, I'm reading Fugaoka's book, uh, One Straw Revolution and Sowing Seeds in the Desert. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm not only am I sprinkling the, the seeds out there, but there's daikon and, and clover going into the the perfectly square, dedicated, flat, irrigated garden bed that I just put in to be a conventional. I couldn't, couldn't stop myself. I'm like, this is, why am I mulching this? Why, why, why am I mulching this when clover will do the job and improve the soil and suppress the weeds like crazy? So I want you to stay flexible in your planning with your homesteads and everything else that you do. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico. Sharing my lessons with you this time from uh, Homestead on 2014, our plans going into 2015, and hopefully helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for